uh, a question. I don't know if you paid any attention to the recent announcement of the honors list. Now, if you have no idea what an honors list is, it's not something to do with the university. That's okay. It's um, twice each year, at New Year and on her birthday, the Queen gives a bunch of people what are called honors. So she declares them to be a knight um, or a dame or uh, a member of the Order of the British Empire, an MBE. Um, Or apparently she can declare you to be a member of the Order of the Bath, which is slightly less exciting. must be to do with good cosmetics production or something like that. But if the Queen declares you to be a knight, everyone has to start calling you Sir. And I quite like the sound of that. Surround. It rolls off the tongue nicely. I think I could, I could take that sort of thing. It sounds like the sort of thing that comes with breakfast in bed, doesn't it? <laughs> so I had a look at what it takes to actually get yourself a knighthood. And, and apparently all you have to do, uh, and I quote, is all you have to do is make a major contribution in any activity at the national level. It's a bit vague, really, isn't it? I thought that might actually be quite handy. I could make a major contribution. Perhaps I can make a major contribution to barbecuing. Uh, or a major contribution to burning stuff. And because of that, then I could declare myself a knight at last securing my breakfast in bed. I don't think I'm far off a national contribution on that front. So you give it a try for me now. You can say, surround. 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 Yeah, I, li- I like the sound of that. But alas, that is not how it works. See, I can't make myself a knight. Um, I can try and make a major contribution at the national level. I can try and do that, do the sorts of things which might get me nominated. But at the end of the day, it's the queen who decides who's a knight and who's not. There's nothing I can do that makes that happen. And the passage we're looking at today covers one really important topic. The topic is, what is it that defines God's people? What makes us in? How do we get on that list? I got backwards and forwards mixed up, but don't worry. We'll go this way. Yeah. So why does it matter? Well, I thought of three things. I mean, perhaps some of you came along today wondering what it actually looks like and what it takes to become a part of God's people. I mean, how do you actually become a Christian and what does that, what does that mean? Or maybe there are other people here who you've tried to take in some steps towards God. You're on that journey, but you're wondering, have I made it? Am I really a part of God's people? Have I actually crossed that line? Or maybe there are some of you here today who you're pretty sure you're a part of God's people, but actually you need to think again, you need to take another look at that and check whether the way you think that works is valid and whether that's how it actually happens. So it's essential we understand what defines God's people. And the passage we're looking at can really help us learn about that today. Um, I'm going to grab a Bible because I left mine somewhere. Bernard ran away with it. Competition at Wycliffe for Bibles, you see. So we're looking at a letter, Philippians, written by Paul. Uh, Paul's one of Jesus' first followers. And he's writing to one of the churches he set up in a Greek town called Philippi. And he's writing from um, a Roman prison cell. It's not a particularly pleasant place. And his personal outlook is pretty negative. What's going to happen next for Paul? Quite likely he's going to die. He's writing to a church um, that was uh, started through what looks like a a pretty brief visit. You can read about it in Acts 16, just back here in the Bible. And um, Paul shows up. Um, There's a conversion. There's an exorcism. There's a beating. There's a prison. There's an escape. There's fleeing from the city. It's really quite a, a short and intense story. And things obviously haven't improved that much because the book of Philippians, the letter we're reading today, there's quite a lot in here about encouraging the church to persevere through the persecution in joyfully living for Christ. But the first question Paul answers today in Philippians 3 is, who exactly are God's people? Now, it's obviously something he's talked about 
with the Philippians before. If you look at verse 1, um, he says, It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's no trouble. He's repeating himself. And he also says it's something important. He says, it's a safeguard for you. But before we can get into how Paul goes about defining God's people, I think we have to start at the very, very beginning. Why is it that God has a people at all? What is it that we mean when we say God's people? And doesn't that imply there are some people who are not God's people? Well, if you flip back right to the beginning of the Bible, we find that in the beginning, when God made the first people, it says he made them in the image of God. So there's a sense in which absolutely everyone is a part of God's people. We're all a reflection of him in some way. But then our first parents turned their backs on God. They, they didn't trust him. They didn't want to be his people. They didn't want to live his way. Now, God didn't give up on them. He launched a rescue plan to try and get his relationship with these people restored. And it's something that he decided to work out through a people he chose. So he started with this guy called Abraham, starting with that people. And working through them, God said, I'm going to work through them to restore my relationship with everyone. So, so why does God have a people? Well, the same rescue plan is still working its way out. We inherit this broken relationship with God from our parents, our first parents. We start life outside the people. And the question is, how do we cross that dividing line into being God's people? How do we end up being the people we were created today? Well, Paul begins today's passage reminding the Philippians what it really is that makes us in God's people. And he begins actually pretty cross with those who have other ideas for what it is who makes someone God's people. Look at what he says. He says, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. That's name calling, isn't it? I mean, that's not exactly what you expect from a front row member of God's elite. Um, But this gets Paul so worked up. It's obviously something important. We should sit up and pay attention as well. So what is going on? There are two competing proposals for defining God's people. It's all about what gets you in. What is it? that gets you onto that special list. Paul's opponents, they point to themselves. They say, I did it. I got me in. On the other hand, Paul points to Jesus. He says, he did it. He got me in. Now, a couple of things in the text might need a bit of explaining. So, um, circumcision, mentioned a lot here. Obviously, something pretty key. Something I don't really want to have to explain in polite company. I'm going to assume you understand what it is. I see some grimaces from the men, so we'll take that as a yes. Why is circumcision an issue when it comes to defining God's people? Well, because it had been the key mark which defined God's people for a long time. It was the boundary marker which said who was in and who was out. It was God's idea. It was something he commanded Abraham, the guy who he started his people with back at the beginning. He said, you and your family and those who come after you, this is what's going to mark you out as God's people in the separate. That's what's going to mark you as, as different from the others around you. And this has been the way it's been. For thousands of years, by the time we get to when Paul is writing this letter. In verse 2, when, call, uh, when, when Paul calls his opponents mutilators of the flesh, this is almost certainly what he's referring to. Um, when he says in verse 3, in verse 3 he says, it is we who are the circumcision. What does he mean? He means it's we who are God's people. We're the ones with this defining mark. So what is the mark that Paul says makes us in God's people? Well, he tells us it's boasting in Christ Jesus, not putting confidence in the flesh. Now, boasting seems it's a bit of a strange basis for membership in God's people. I mean, generally, it doesn't get a good rap, does it, boasting? It's the sort of thing we're meant to not do. I think that's the point, though. 
That's exactly the point, because it's an odd kind of boasting when you don't boast in yourself, but you boast in someone else. Of course, there's always the my dad's better than your dad type of thing. But here, the sharp contrast is Paul's opponents boasting in themselves what they've done. Paul boasting in Jesus, not anything that he has done. Now, this is a big deal for Paul to say this. It's a big deal for Paul to say this because, as he goes on to point out, if it was looking to yourself, if it was pointing to yourself and how you're doing, well, Paul could have done that like a champ. See, if those were the rules, Paul's a winner. He was a card-carrying super Jew, according to those rules. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He reels off a long, long list of qualifications, and they're all joined up by the same thing. It was me. I did it. I got me in. I'm the reason I'm on this list. But then he goes and stamps on that idea really hard. All these qualifications, he says, all these achievements, all these great things he had to his name, what does it all add up to? Whatever were gains to me, well, now I consider them loss. Zero is what it adds up to. Paul's thinking has fundamentally changed about how it works. I now consider, he says. He used to think differently about this, but now his mind has changed. The stuff he thought was important, the stuff he thought was putting him soundly into this category of God's people, what does he say now? Worthless, utterly ineffective, completely bankrupt. And what replaces it? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul tells us in verse 8. Well, we're going to dig in a bit later to exactly what it means to know Christ Jesus. So there's quite a lot under those words, but let's stop here and take a minute to reflect first. Why is it that none of the stuff that Paul had done and had credited himself with, why is it that none of that matters? Why doesn't that get him into God's people? I mean, he kept God's law, didn't he? He says he did. He says, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Surely that's enough. This isn't Paul just claiming, look, if you weigh me up in the balance, I got some good stuff, I got some bad stuff, but net, I'm a pretty nice guy, the sort of way we might think about ourselves. This is Paul saying, I scored 100%. I was perfect. I was faultless. Now, why isn't that enough? Why isn't that good enough to get you into God's people? Well, the Pharisees, that's the the Jewish group that Paul used to belong to, they made this huge effort to keep absolutely every regulation of the Jewish purity law, which defined God's people. So there are some 500 and some rules. And for every rule, they put rules around the rules to make sure you didn't break them. And around those rules, they put some fences. Around those fences, they put some keep out signs a bit further back. So there was no chance you would accidentally break any one of these rules. Like um, on on a Sabbath day, the law says you're meant to rest. And just to make sure you were definitely resting on the Sabbath day, they made a long, long list of absolutely everything that was work. They decided how far it was you could walk before you were doing work. When the law told you, you've got to offer your first fruits to God. Well, when they went to eat with somebody else, they would take a bit of the food on their plate and they would shove it to one side and offer that to God, just in case the people they were eating with hadn't done that. Why isn't that good enough for God? They're really trying hard to do the right thing. For an answer to that, we've got to turn to Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about this sort of top scorer? Well... Um, This is Jesus in Matthew 23. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Ouch. So what's the problem with Paul's 10 out of 10 on the law? Nothing. Nothing as far as it goes, but it's focused on fixing the outside. It's focused on the visible. It's focused on what looks right. It's an exercise in missing. The point is like arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic when there's a gaping hole underneath. See, the outside is just the tip of the iceberg if you really want to keep the law. Jesus says really keeping the law is about loving God and about loving people. Really keeping the law is about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says it's about the inside. And the outside just reflects that. So first clean the inside of the cup, that the outside may also be clean, Jesus says. So I think that means we have to ask ourselves, have we been arranging deck chairs? Have I been busy slapping lipstick on a pig, if you'll forgive the expression? Have you been polishing up the outside of your cup without changing the inside. How often do we try and look like a nice person to the casual observer? On the inside, we know we really haven't changed. If being a part of God's people rests on cleaning the inside, not the outside, well, then what can we do? I mean, if that's the problem, what's the solution? Because the problem isn't about things we do, not nearly so much as about who we are, and I can't change that, I'm me. End of story. Well, in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, the inside change starts with knowing Christ Jesus, with gaining Christ, with being found in him. He puts it all these different ways. He explains what it is that Christians believe is the way into God's people. Verse 9 is really, really important. What gets us onto God's honors list? It's not our doing and acting. Not having a righteousness of my own. No. It's having a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, that's what it means to be in God's people. It's not looking to ourselves to get us in on our own righteousness, not thinking we can get on that list by just ticking some boxes. It's knowing Jesus, the one who makes that list and accepting his invitation to share in his place through faith. Now, I'm going to come back again to um, what it means to know Christ Jesus and how to see that inside change later on. But I think there's another question that's really worth asking ourselves as we read this. Why is this an issue for the Philippians at all? Okay, Paul started this church. He explained to them what it is to be a part of God's people and how it works. He makes that clear. He says, I'm I'm writing the same things to you. He's repeating himself. Now, are they just forgetful? Or are they just going to turn from pointing to Jesus to pointing to themselves? That doesn't make any sense. Surely they know they don't cut the mustard. Well, 
Well, perhaps. But I think there's something else going on here as well. And you'll notice as we've been going through Philippians for the last few weeks that persecution is one of the big themes in the letter. Persecution is a big problem. It was a big problem for Paul when he was there in Philippi, and it looks like it's carried on being a problem for the church. Well, in no small way, persecution is a problem because Christianity was viewed as a subversive, as an outlaw religion. The Romans, who ruled so much of the world at that part of the time, um, take a look at it from their point of view, right? There's a bunch of people following after a convicted criminal they killed and calling him Lord, not the Roman emperor. That sounds pretty dicey, actually. It doesn't sound like good news for the empire at all. So there's lots of suspicion of Christians and lots of questions over them and perhaps even open persecution in places. It's a big contrast to how the Jews were treated by the Romans. See, Judaism was what's called um, a religio licita. It was one of the, the, the Romans had a list of things that it was okay for you to believe. There was permitted. You could do it without getting in any trouble. Now, If all it took was just a little snip to put you under the cover of Judaism and to end all that persecution, surely that would be a pretty powerful attraction, wouldn't it? And what could possibly be the harm? It's just avoiding being obnoxious to our Jewish brothers, isn't it? It's just avoiding poking our finger in their eye. I mean, what's the trouble with going along with some of what they want? We could even still be a part of their group. It might give us opportunities to reach them. Even Paul seems to walk some of the way along that line, doesn't he? Paul gets one of his Gentile companions, Timothy, circumcised because of the Jews. That's back in Acts 16. So what could be the problem with this? Why is Paul worried about it going this way? The problem is it's a slippery slope. Oh, I just did that to get them off my back. But the danger is, well, it won't stop there. There'll be a bit more compliance. A bit more compliance, a bit more blending in. And before we know it, we start looking an awful lot like them. We blend in really nicely. There's no more persecution for us. That's great. But now our way of life tells a different story about what it really is that defines God's people. And that's a story we might start to believe ourselves too. I think that's a real danger for us today, for Christians, to take on things that make us less objectionable to the world around us. Often pretty small things. Often things that aren't even a big deal. Maybe things that don't even conflict with what we believe. Well, we take them on. And over time, they just start becoming a part of the scenery. Part of who we are and part of what we do. And over time, we can grow easily confused about their place and their importance. And what really is the main thing about being a Christian? And what is it that's a defining issue? When you watch the news, when you read the paper, when you talk to your friends and your colleagues... Do you feel a pressure to conform? Can't we just be more tolerant? Come on, Christians, can't you just be more tolerant? Can't can you be a bit more inclusive? Can't you just stop being quite so exclusive and dismissive of others? Can't, can't we just be a bit more eco-friendly? Surely there's nothing wrong with that. But how long is it before we start slipping into thinking being a Christian is fundamentally about being tolerant? Or it's fundamentally about being inclusive or fundamentally about recycling. But we start believing the story we're telling others. Actually, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm all right. I think I scored pretty highly. You know, I think if I was God, I'd probably quite like people like me. I'm quite nice. I'm tolerant. I recycle. 
I carefully sort my thing into three bins. But Paul says, no. He says, look out. Remember the truth. None of this is worth anything in the end. None of it is real gain. It's all zero. When the chips are down, the only thing that matters in the end is Jesus. And he, he is of surpassing worth in comparison to all these things. Whatever good they are, he's so much, so much more. So I want you to ask yourself, is there somewhere that you're going along with things just for the sake of acceptance? Are there things you're putting on just to try and stand out a little bit less? I mean, if someone looked at my life, what would they think was the defining issue for me? Now, there's uh, one more thing uh, I want to take a look at. Mentioned it a few times already, this idea of knowing Christ. Paul describes it as being of surpassing worth. This is the megabucks. This is the pearl of great price. And it's the true defining mark of God's people. But what does it actually mean? I think it needs some pretty serious unpacking for us to have a fuller understanding of what Paul means. What is he getting at when he says, knowing Christ? I think then it gives us a hand with that right here in the text. But for starters, let me give you something that knowing Christ isn't. Knowing Christ isn't knowing a topic, like getting ready for an exam, as I'm sure many of you here have done recently. It's not like when you arrive at the pearly gates, St. Peter will be there with a multi-choice quiz booklet with your name on it and he'll say ah Matt we've been expecting you if you just take a seat at this table and fill out this paper then we'll see um, whether you make it in or not there's no heavenly points mean prizes round where bible trivia is going to earn you extra perks later on see knowing Christ is not knowing about Christ these are absolutely different things it's immediately obvious really isn't it let's try a test case for you okay Do you know anything about the queen? Do you know her name? Do you know her favorite animal? Her birthday favorite tipple? Now, um, you all know something about the queen, right? Are we privileged enough today to have anyone here who actually knows the queen? I thought being in Oxford, we actually might have somebody who knows the queen. No one who knows the queen? No one who knows the queen here today. Um, But... Even if we had someone here who did have an acquaintance with the Queen, it would just be an acquaintance. They wouldn't really know her, would they? So that's the first point on knowing. Knowing is not knowing about. As James's letter in the Bible points out really clearly, even the demons know a thing or two about God. Being able to spell out the entire life story of the British monarchy is lovely, but it doesn't mean you know the Queen, not in the slightest. Learning about Jesus is a fine thing to do. I'm not saying it's bad, but you'll end up knowing about him. You won't necessarily end up knowing him. So what does it mean to know Christ? Well, ask yourself what it means to know anyone. What does it mean for me to know my wife or my father or my pastor? Truly knowing a person surely is about relationship with them. And doesn't, show, doesn't that show the huge gap between these two ways of defining God's people that we've been talking about? One side says it's all about rules 
That's what being in God's people is about. It's about rules and keeping the rules. It's about the outside. The other side says, it's all about knowing. It's all about relationship. A personal relationship with God. And that, at the end of the day, is the utterly unique claim and basis of Christianity. A personal relationship with God. Now, I wonder if there's anyone here today who feels like they know about Christ, um, but they don't actually know him. You see, I grew up learning and knowing quite a lot about Jesus, actually. And it didn't make a hoot of difference to my life. I uh, I went along to Sunday school. I went along to church. I heard a lot of things. I read my Bible. But it wasn't until I was at university I finally opened myself up to actually knowing Jesus and not just knowing about him. See, there's something unusual that Paul says here in our passage, which really chimes with what happened to me. Paul talks in verse 8. If you have a look, he says, um, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's unusual, and that's significant. That's a significant part of what really knowing Jesus means. It's knowing him as your Lord, and that was key for me. That was the line I didn't want to cross in the end. I knew about Jesus, and I knew what he wanted from my life, but it was my life, thank you very much, and I was in charge of living it. I wanted to be my own boss. I didn't want some killjoy. But accepting that Jesus was, in fact, my Lord was part of what it meant for me to actually know him and have a relationship with him rather than just know about him. Now, if that connects with you at all, I would love to talk to you um, after the service and uh, hear your story and tell you a bit more about mine. But Paul gives us more here. He expands on what it means to know Jesus in a surprising and somewhat strange way. Because see what he adds on in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. And then he kind of explains what that actually is. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's pretty straightforward stuff. Not. Three things there. There's power, okay? There's participation, and there's becoming like. And uh, because I know you actually want to eat lunch at some point, I just want to focus on the last one. What does Paul mean when he talks about knowing Jesus is becoming like him in his death? Does it mean that Paul wants to know Jesus? That means that Paul wants to die a death as a substitute for the sins of others like Jesus dying in their place, becoming like him in that way? Of course not. Paul knows Jesus was the ultimate once-for-all substitute. That's not what he means in becoming like Jesus in his death. Does it just mean that Paul really, really wants to die, actually, and that his goal as a part of knowing Jesus is to um, become a martyr, to die for his faith? Well, if knowing Jesus really means that, then knowing Jesus is only for martyrs. It's only for an elite supergroup. Now, those sort of people, I think, are rightly honored. But it's not what Paul could mean here when he's writing to the church. He doesn't expect the whole church to die. There's some details in the language that give us some clues here. So Paul says knowing Jesus is becoming like him. It's becoming. And that means it's a process. The language makes it clear it's a process that is continuing, an ongoing thing. So it can't possibly be a one-time death somewhere in the future at the end of the road that Paul is looking forward to. That's not what knowing Jesus means. Knowing Jesus is this process. 
of becoming like him. And also the particular word he uses for becoming, if you translate it very, very literally, it says taking the same form as, taking the same form as. And that should make our ears prick up. Because it's an echo, an echo that takes us back a few verses to where Paul was talking about Jesus' death. Do you remember Philippians 2.8? It's very famous, and we looked at it um, recently. Being found in appearance as a man, it says in our ones. Being found in human form, it says in other translations. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what was Jesus' death like? It was terrible, yes. It was undeserved, utterly unjust, yes. But Philippians 2.8 tells us it was humble obedience. That's what Jesus' death was like. His death was humble obedience. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, truly knowing Jesus is what he wants, is what we should want. Well, that's a process of becoming like him in his death. A process of becoming humbly obedient, no matter what the cost. And that, I think, is what Paul says it means to know Jesus. So what have we learned? Well, we set out looking for what defines God's people. And what is it that makes you in? How do you get on that special list? And the answer is that he did it. Jesus did it, not me. But more importantly than how you get in, what is it that defines God's people? One summary statement. What is it that defines God's people? Knowing Jesus. It's not knowing about him, but knowing him as a person in relationship. And knowing Jesus, what does that really mean when it works out? It means a life of becoming like him in his death. A life of becoming humbly obedient, no matter what the cost.